Social Impact CX, the podcast that helps you drive mission and make a difference with customer experience. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Social Impact CX podcast. I'm John Corrigan, and I'll be your guide to how you can drive mission and achieve social impact with customer experience work. This is episode 14 of Social Impact CX, and again, thanks for listening. Today, I'm grateful for the team at Feedback Labs in Washington, D.C. If you're not familiar with Feedback Labs, they are a leadership organization focused on closing feedback loops in aid and philanthropy, and they are working both here in the U.S. as well as around the world. Their focus on feedback loops is specifically designed so that nonprofits, non-governmental organizations, and other mission-oriented groups can focus on what people want to help make their lives better. I like how Feedback Labs talks about getting feedback from regular people, beneficiaries, constituents, citizens, which I think has some real affinity to what we talk about here at Social Impact CX when we point out that you may not use the word customer, you may say client or patient or beneficiary or member, but what's most important is that all important concept of creating empathy and a better understanding of whomever it is that you are working to serve because the more you know about that person, the more you can help. And as a customer experience practitioner focused on social impact and nonprofits, I place great importance on getting feedback from real people, just like Feedback Labs does. I very much value and respect the work going on at Feedback Labs, which brings us to the subject of episode 14 of Social Impact CX. I recently had the great pleasure to talk with Megan Campbell, who is Director of Research, Learning, and Engagement at Feedback Labs. Just a couple months ago, Feedback Labs released a new research report entitled, Under What Conditions is Information Empowering? And I think it's a fascinating piece of work. You know, just because you have or provide a lot of information, that does not always mean that it's empowering. A lot of info does not necessarily lead to a lot of action or a lot of measurable activity or measurable outcomes. The conditions required to get to action and empowerment are important considerations to understand and that's what this report is all about. You can find it to download on the Feedback Labs website at feedbacklabs.org, and we'll give more information about that as we post online as well. Megan Campbell was a key player at Feedback Labs in creating, producing, and publishing this report. There are seven principles included. It's a very well-organized and easy-to-read report, and Megan and I cover all seven of these principles in our discussion, and we also talk through examples for each. Episode 14 of Social Impact CX is part one of my discussion with Megan and part two of my discussion with her will come in Social Impact CX episode 15. One other item that might be of interest is that Feedback Lab's annual Feedback Summit is taking place in early October. I'm recording this podcast in early September 2018. I'm attending Feedback Summit this year and I'm looking forward to it. If you have any interest, you should check it out and uh, all the information for the event is also at their website, feedbacklabs.org. You can find registration info, and they also have some other interesting content from prior feedback summits that occurred over the past few years. But for now, I'll turn to the first part of my great conversation with Megan Campbell. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again uh, here at Social Impact CX. Uh, Today, I am very pleased to have with me as a guest, Megan Campbell of Feedback Labs, and uh, Megan is Director of Research, Learning, and Engagement at Feedback Labs in Washington, D.C. And uh, we're going to talk today about a report uh, that uh, Megan and the Feedback Labs team put out uh, this summer here 
uh, it's called Under What Conditions is Information Empowering? And I've had a chance to read the report, which is fascinating. And they had a great event um, uh, in July launching the report. But I'm going to actually turn it over to Megan. Uh, Megan, if you could spend a couple minutes um, just telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at Feedback Labs. Actually, tell us a little bit about Feedback Labs also, if people aren't familiar. Um, and then we can spend some time talking about this uh, really interesting report. Fantastic. Yeah, happy to. And thank you for having me. Um, so Feedback Labs is a network of almost, well, over 450 organizations that span aid, philanthropy, and government around the world. And the thing that those organizations all have in common is they're all trying to do a better job of listening to the people they seek to serve. And so people come to Feedback Labs and join our network because they're really just trying to answer three questions in their work, which are, you know, what do people want to make their lives better? Are we helping them get it? And if not, what should we be doing differently? And that, those questions um, seem straightforward, but to me, they're really revolutionary. So I uh, joined Feedback Labs after a number of years working um, in rural Malawi with uh, local government there. And you know, the number of projects that would come in and say to people, well, we can offer you a water point, so you'd better want a water point, and never thought to ask, you know, what, what do you want to make your lives better, and, uh, and can we help you get it, um, was really staggering. So, um, so that's why I came to Feedback Labs, was to try to put, you know, the people that we're trying to serve really at the center of the work we do, whether we're an aid agency or a nonprofit implementer in the U.S. or, you know, a state or municipal government, um, but really focus on, you know, on our customer, on the person that we're trying to serve. Sure. That's, so you guys really have, you have a footprint in the U.S. and then well beyond also, is that correct? Exactly. Yeah, we have uh, members of our network in every region of the world. Great, great. I, I think you're a really interesting organization. And so tell us a little bit about what you do in your role um, at Feedback Labs. Well, I mostly help to frame a lot of the conceptual issues around feedback and then also frame the evidence so that people within our network can um, use it to convince others that you know, listening and responding to feedback is an important thing to do. Um, and so whether that's with this report that we're talking about today, under what conditions is information empowering, or um, reports that we've done in the past, for example, we had Is Feedback Smart, which was a report where we summarized the evidence about um, how and whether listening and responding to feedback can actually lead to better outcomes. Um, and it's actually it's actually really impressive. Um, we see really uh, large gains sometimes um, when people when organizations uh, listen and respond to feedback. So you know, 33% improvements in under five child mortality in Uganda, or entire like one quartile percent improvements in survival for heart attack patients in the U.S. Um, so a lot of what my job is, is to help people uh, access that, that evidence, be able to use it to spread the feedback message, um, and be able to have conversations with each other that really drive the field forward. That's interesting. Here at Social Impact CX, I'm always talking about um, the more you know, the more you can help, and customer experience work has a lot to do 
with empathy and you really can't get to empathy unless you've actually listened to the people that you're trying to help. And so uh, I, I think the work that you guys do is great. And those are some impressive um, uh, results that you can cite about how you've demonstrated how the actual feedback can uh, produce results that help people. Absolutely. All right. So, so let's, let's talk today about this report, which is out um, uh, just this summer here. Um, and we've already mentioned it's called Under What Conditions is Information Empowering? And I know that you can uh, find it online. There's a, if you're on Twitter, there's a hashtag, uh, it's hashtag InfoPower. Um, uh, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit uh, about the report, where you can find it, you know, but then also, you know, why was it done? If you could share some context and then the research approach. And I know that you guys there at Feedback Labs, you had a couple key partners involved. Um, uh, so give us a little context about the report, if you could. Absolutely, absolutely. And anyone who's interested, yeah, I suggest um, going on Twitter, following at Feedback Labs, searching the hashtag, hashtag InfoPower, um, or you can find it right on our homepage at feedbacklabs.org. So those are the best places to find it. Um, but in terms of why it was done, well, actually, sorry, let me try that again. <laughs> um, so the report was done uh, in partnership with, between Global Giving, and, which is a Feedback Labs network member and Feedback Labs, uh, and was supported by the OMDR network. And I think all of us who were involved um, so Global Giving, Feedback Labs, OMDR Network, um, and including the, the advisory board members that we, that we um, uh, brought into this work, I think we all realize that, you know, over the last decade in particular, there has been a lot of investment um, to make information openly available, right? Whether it's like the open data movement or open government, um, you know, investments in media. There's just been a lot of um, investment made in providing information to people. Yeah. And I think we all realize that we have not seen the empowerment outcomes that we wanted to see from that work. So there has been a lot of great work done, but I think we all recognized going into this, uh, into this project that there's a lot more that is needed. And, and that's why we ask the question, under what conditions is information empowering? Because we're recognizing information on its own doesn't empower. Right. Right. So if that's the case, what other conditions need to be there in order for information to empower? Gotcha. That's, that, that's, a, that's a valid point. In a day, of, a day and age of information overload, it's not even a matter of being able to sort through the information that's out there, I think. But understanding what makes it meaningful so that people can act and be empowered by it. I think that's a, a really important concept. It's great that you guys um, have spent some time exploring that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, um, so you know, not everyone downloads and reads research reports every day. So I, I will tell you, the listener here, that you should go to the Feedback Labs website and download the report. Um, it is a very friendly read, and not only does it have a good table of contents and it's very well organized, but um, the I really I love this, Megan. I know that you were probably very key in making this happen. There are seven principles that shape the report, um, uh, and not only are the seven principles in the table of contents, but page three of the report is the seven principles broken out in a very easy and friendly way to read. 
And then also you even provide a checklist of uh, uh, key components of seven principles and then examples as well. And so and I thought today maybe we could talk about then uh, the seven principles and, and getting into some examples to bring those seven principles to life. I thought that might be a great way to shape our discussion. That would that would be great, and uh, and I tell you, it was it was difficult coming up with just seven principles because I mean, obviously, it's it's a really broad question, right? Under what conditions does information empower? I mean, that's almost a crazy question to tackle, um, and we didn't just want to tackle it from the lens of um, international development or philanthropy. We really wanted to say, what do many sectors and fields have to say? about that question. And so, you know, there are hundreds of papers and examples um, cited in the report and from, from all sorts of fields. So we looked at international development, we looked at marketing, we looked at behavioral economics, we looked at media, um, you know, these very different fields and tried to synthesize um, some some small set of principles that we really think uh, capture what what the literature and the experience from all those fields says. And so you know, so we came up with seven, and I, I feel like that's quite the uh, quite the accomplishment. Um, you feel and, that these yeah. seven though really apply. It doesn't really matter what field you're in. This is not just for nonprofits or non-government organizations or aid groups or or government or whatever. If you're trying to make information empowering, these are seven pretty good principles that should help you um, uh, make meaning of all this. Exactly, exactly. And that's really how we tried to frame them. And, and you said, you know, it's a pretty easy read and I think a pretty engaging read. And we really tried to write the report and frame the principles such that someone who's, you know, involved in any kind of initiative where they're providing information and they want to make it empowering can look at these and say, oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. And I have enough examples here and and thoughts that I can then reflect on what those principles mean for my work. Um, and so we really wanted to make this report useful. Great. All right. Well, I got to tell you, I love principle number one. It is so uh, logical, but I don't know that everybody stops to think about this. The, the first of the seven principles is interpretation is social. And so tell us about how you came to that. Uh, that came to be the first principle and a little bit more about it. Yeah, so interpretation is social. And I feel like this is the, the I feel like principles one and two um, are really the bedrock of the report. So Interpretation is social, but reinterpretation is power. Oh, that's it. That's and, yes, they do relate. That's great. Yeah, and, and I think what we're trying to, to say there is say, okay, the first thing you need to understand is that the way we interpret information is mediated by the social groups to which we belong. And that and that's an agnostic principle, right? That doesn't mean... Um, People will always, you know, interpret information socially in the way we want them to. That could be a thing that's used for good. It could be a thing that's used for ill. Um, and, you know, when we get into the case studies around Facebook, we can see some um, some examples of that playing out in really in, in important ways. But, you know, the social groups to which people belong affect how they're going to interpret information. That's really principle number one. Um, 
and then we say, you know, but it's it's not just interpretation of information then that's empowering. It's actually the process when you can get someone to reinterpret information. That's that's powerful. That becomes empowering. And so, you know, and so that's going to be you're probably going to want to leverage social bonds to do that. But it's really the act of um, discourse or conversation-based reinterpretation of information that is where we think someone becomes empowered. Interesting. So, so uh, I, I totally agree that you know, uh, principle one being interpretation of social is is very interrelated with interpretation two of uh, or. Um, uh, uh, principle two, which is reinterpretation as power. You touched on some subjects, though, that are, I think are pretty deep topics, such as social bonds and, and dialogue. Could you talk a little bit more about um, why, what, what do you mean by social bonds? You know, how is that important in its context? And then, um, you know, in the context of those social bonds, how do you get to reinterpretation? And uh, what would something like that look like? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So social bonds, um, we're really talking about um, broadly about the many ways that people define the social groups to which they belong. So those could be based on their political beliefs. Um, it could be based on their religious beliefs. It could be based on where they where they live and their neighbors. Um, you know, there's a great um, book that's cited in in the report um, connected, and it actually um, they they summarize a study that shows that emotions can actually spread through social networks. Yep. So if a person, so if a friend of a friend is happy, I'm actually six percent more likely to also be happy. Um, whereas you know if someone gives me five thousand dollars, that only increases my happiness by two percent. So, you know, the fact that a friend of a friend has this emotion can actually spread uh, back to me, even if I'm not, you know, necessarily interacting with them really directly. So, so we define social bonds pretty broadly. So it might mean, you know, friends of friends on social media groups. It might mean, um, you know, com your bonds with a community leader or a religious leader. Um, I think it or was, it might even oh you know, yeah go ahead before you go on so what I think really interesting is that your these bonds provide the context of how people experience things and I think that at least that's part of my takeaway and that is so important um, when you're trying to help when you're trying to provide aid or support or a meaningful experience in whatever the context is whether it's uh, in a social impact environment or even a commercial environment and the subject of emotion um, is so important it, in customer experience work emotion is not nearly as well researched as some of the other elements in customer experience work but emotion is most likely the number one determinant of whether or not somebody comes back now if, mm -hmm. if you uh, if you're coming back to a restaurant or a car dealership that's one thing but you know, when you move into the world of aid and social impact and, and some of the organizations you're talking about, you know, coming back can be key for healthcare delivery or other social services or whatever it is. And so the idea of emotion and then emotion being considered in this context of feedback and experience, and I think it's just 
is absolutely critical and it, it has not been talked about enough. And I hope that there's more and more reports like this and conversations that happen uh, talking about emotion because I think it is, uh, um, this is really an important subject. So I was, I was glad to, to hear you, you touch on that. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's interesting is that you really have to understand the emotions that a social interaction is going to uh, elicit in someone. And so, you know, in one of the case studies, um, we talk about in, under this principle, we talk about the fact that, you know, door-to-door -door canvassing has been really effective at uh, changing behaviors in certain contexts. So even if you don't have an existing social bond with someone who shows up on your door, the fact that you have a conversation with them can be really effective. It's been really effective in the U.S. to encourage voting. Um, uh, it's been effective in uh, encouraging the use of oral rehydration salts in Bangladesh. But that doesn't mean that that always that that always works or that that interaction will always elicit a positive reaction. So, for example. In Nigeria, um, there people went door to door offering um, vaccines, and in a context where it's actually really difficult sometimes to access basic health care, that interaction elicited suspicion and uh, a negative reaction rather than a positive one. So it really is, you know, dependent on the person that you're interacting with, and you have to understand what emotions are they going to feel the person and the cultural um, uh, inference and, and that the, the context of emotion is really important too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, tell me, let's touch on, since we're talking about um, uh, principles one and two, let's talk about this idea of reinterpretation. I think that is worthy of maybe um, exploring that a bit further. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it's, a really interesting concept. It can be hard to, to wrap your head around. I certainly found it that way. Um, and so I really like um, to, to explain it with the illustration of a, of a study that was done in Uganda on health service reform. And so basically, um, there were the, you know, the researchers um, with this intervention went into different communities in Uganda and in some of them, they provided them with information about um, the health services that they were that they were uh, receiving. So I think it was things like, um, you know, staff staffing levels or um, you know things like that. And for some of those communities, they just received the information. And others received the information, but then they had a conversation between the community members and the health clinic officers to sort of create a shared reinterpretation of what that information meant. And in those communities, the suggestions that came out of those communities in terms of how they might improve um, the uh, health services were more realistic, they were more effective, and the outcome differences were really substantial. So in the communities where there was this conversation, not just you know receiving information, but a but a conversation to say what does this information mean to us, um, and this d dialogue between the health the health officers and the community members, that's where we saw you know these over 30% reductions uh, in under five child mortality, and so the act of 
sitting with that information and talking about it and and figuring out what it meant collectively and reinterpreting it seemed to be what drove um, this really striking improvement in outcomes. That's interesting. So going back to the title of the report, under what conditions is information empowering? It's not just this socialized context, uh, but also being in a culture or scenario or opportunity where um, uh, information can be reinterpreted um, to make a more powerful and producer result. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on on um, principles one and two, or should we move on to principle three? Well, let's move on. Principle three is pretty fantastic, too. It is. Demand rules. Let's talk about that, principle three. Principle three. So principle three is basically saying that people are going to demand certain pieces of information. And if you want to be effective, you need to provide the information that they're demanding. But you also need to provide it in the way that they're demanding it. Um, and so, you know, related, so if interpretation is social, people might want to receive information through a certain person with whom they already have a relationship or, you know, they might want to receive it in a certain context over another. And so we really need to think about, um, you know, for our customer, for the person we're trying to serve, what, what do they want and how can we meet their demand instead of just supplying them with the information that we think that they need. That is a great point. I love this point that um, uh, the demand rules. And I think when you push beyond um, some like normalized commercial consumer context, the idea of, of you know where the information occur occurs really becomes important in terms of uh, it's not just online or where somebody is purchasing. You know, purchase behavior is, is well researched in in the consumer culture. But when you start considering beneficiaries and clients and people who uh, need help in whatever way it is you're working on, um, meet, you know, meeting them where they are and delivering information, and, and this is all part of demand, um, uh, um, is, is really important because if you deliver great information in a place where it doesn't reach them, uh, you, you, you kind of miss the whole point. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love to illustrate this principle. I love the example of the New York City court navigators. Um, and so this was a pilot program uh, introduced in New York in, I believe, 2014. And basically, they placed um, navigators, which were trained volunteers, um, into uh, in courthouses. And some people who were coming in, some tenants who were coming in to have their um, to have their cases heard, were assigned the help of a navigator. But here's the interesting thing: you know, normally we'd think, okay, great, well, the navigator can provide them with legal information, and they can. But these navigators had no legal background. And, you know, they weren't, they weren't lawyers. They weren't there to represent this person or give them, you know, strict legal advice. They were there to tell them things like, you know, here's, here's how you get to the courtroom that you have to go to, or, you know, here's um, the questions the judge might ask you, or if the judge says this, you know, they're asking for you to respond now. So this non-legal information that, you know, who knows, is it because it made people feel more comfortable? Is it 
because it gave them more confidence. We don't actually know the mechanism that was in play, but clearly these uh, these navigators provided information that was valuable and it provided it in a way that people really um, were able to take advantage of, despite the fact that it, they weren't providing any legal information. And again, and this was you know a pilot, but again the um, the outcomes were really striking. I think the um, tenants who were assisted by a navigator were almost 90% more likely than an unassisted tenant, an unassisted tenant, to have their defenses recognized and addressed by the court. And I think the judges ordered landlords to make repairs um, about 50% more often in the cases that were assisted by a navigator. So again, really, really striking results. That is interesting. I think the idea of not only demand, but then providing that assist through a navigator or whomever it is to get to the information in the right place. And when I was vice president of customer experience for ACT, which is a major nonprofit educational testing company, um, one of our most important navigators, actually probably the most important navigators were high school counselors, uh, especially in underserved populations, where in, you know, in major cities you can find a thousand students to, or plus to every one high school counselor. And those counselors and their ability to help first generation students and underserved students understand the process of how you get to uh, the, how you get to financial aid and admissions and applications and all that sort of stuff was absolutely critical. And so I think, you know, for everyone listening uh, here, I think it's really important to stop and think about, uh, A, where does demand occur? Um, uh, and where are you going to reach your audience? But then this point of navigators, and in your example of that, it, in, in New York, in the court system, is fantastic because uh, people who help assist, they aren't necessarily the court system or lawyers themselves or aren't necessarily testing experts in the ACT example. The people who help connect the people who need the, the assistance or the service or whatever it is, they are absolutely critical and you never want to skip that step. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is Social Impact CX podcast episode 14, and that was the first part of my conversation with Megan Campbell, the Director of Research, Learning, and Engagement at Feedback Labs in Washington, D.C. Part two of my conversation with Megan about the report, Under What Conditions is Information Empowering, will be in Social Impact CX episode 15. I really enjoyed my conversation with Megan, and I think Feedback Labs is doing some fascinating work. You can download this report, which was released in the summer of 2018, from the Feedback Labs website, feedbacklabs.org. And at the website, you can also check out information about their Feedback Summit event. As I've said before, Social Impact CX is also intended to be an interactive forum, a, a, a place to stir conversation, answer questions, provide some context and definitions, and help, hopefully achieve a better understanding of customer experience work in social impact environments. So what questions do you have after listening to my discussion with Megan? You can ask a question or make a comment in Social Impact CX a couple different ways. First, you can send an email to comment at socialimpactcx.com. That's C-O-M-M-E-N-T at S-O-C-I-A-L-I-M-P-A-C-T-C-X dot com. You can also find us on Twitter and post a question there. Our Twitter handle is at Social Impact CX. And please follow us on Twitter to stay up to date with new podcasts and other related content. You can also find me on Twitter at the handle at JF Corrigan, or if you're listening to this podcast via YouTube, feel free to post a question in the comment section, and we'll do our best to catch you there. 
And while you're at YouTube, please subscribe to the Social Impact CX channel. This is John Corrigan reminding you that, especially in social impact work, it's important to understand that your mission is really all about someone else's journey. And the more you know about someone's journey, the more you can help. Thanks for listening to Social Impact CX.